Welcome to Odeon Capital Conversations on all things money and markets with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstyne. And here is your host, John Aiden Byrne. You're listening to episode 39 on this episode of Odeon Capital Conversations. Dick Beauvais will do a deep dive into bank earnings reports and has warnings for investors on what they may have missed. Loan losses have soared and the rise in interest rates has caused the value of bank assets to plunge. We'll take a look at the latest chapter in this era of easy money. The political and economic turmoil continues in the UK with British Prime Minister Liz Truss replacing her finance minister with Jeremy Hunt. We look at what's happening and the response of the markets. We look at the future of the oil and energy markets and divisions on policy. As the tragedy in Ukraine continues, we'll share some thoughts on where this puts China on the global stage. I'm with Dick Beauvais, Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon Capital Group, and Matt Van Alstein, Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And I'm your host, John Aiden Byrne. We'll be right back after this message. Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered. Dick and Matt, welcome back for this episode. We've lots to talk about. We had the inflation numbers out last week. Inflation does indeed seem to be peaking. It came in at 8.2, smaller than the 8.3 um, in September. Uh, we have a lot of earnings reports. We have turmoil in the UK, and we have lots more to talk about on the geopolitical stage. Earnings, Dick, uh, you've that's sort of your sweet spot, as it were, although some of the news or your analysis is bittersweet, it seems to me, on bank earnings. Yeah, no, this is this is really interesting period for me uh, in that virtually every bank uh, that's reported, uh, and, and I've looked at 11 bank earnings reports now since Friday, has shown uh, an improvement over estimate. Truist did not, but every other bank did. Uh, and, you know, the stocks reacted immediately on the positive side and, and are, are moving up pretty sharply again today on the fact that the estimates uh, were too low and the banks came in with better numbers. The problem is, for me, is that uh, the earnings were not good. In other words, they, they may have beaten the estimates, but they were bad. Uh, and I'm going to use Goldman Sachs as an example because they had the worst earnings comparison and they've had the biggest jump in earning in, 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 in their stock price. So so what what essentially <clears throat> is happening? The market is saying that we've priced in, you know, we'll say 10 bucks in earnings. And if the company comes in with 11 bucks in earnings, the market says, well, we priced in 10 bucks. If it's 11 bucks, then basically the stock is too low and we've got to adjust the stock price to reflect the fact that our assumptions 
uh, of where earnings were were too low. The problem is the 10 bucks in earnings might be down 25, 30, 40% from what it was last year. And that's not good. Uh, and taking it a step further, and again, in, in the case of Goldman Sachs, stock is up 15 points right now, despite the fact that its earnings were down 45% year over year. So what therefore was the problem? The, the issue is that the market is not willing to take a look at the current operating business models of these companies. In other words, what the market is saying is we don't care what the business model is. We don't care what is going on with the company. What we care about is whether the estimate of earnings was correct or not. And I, I have, I'm having a lot of trouble believing that. And therefore, I'm strongly advising that people, you know, take take some profits against the rally that's occurring in the market at the present time. Because what do the underlying numbers show? Well, first off, it's, they show that loan losses are increasing dramatically in the banking industry. Uh, the second thing that they show is that the pre-tax earnings of every company, every company that I looked at are down and they are down, as I say, meaningfully. Uh, the third thing that they show is that the net income of these companies are down. The two uh, investment banking companies don't produce the numbers uh, yet. You have to wait for their 10 Qs. But basically, every company that I've looked at uh, shown a decline in net in, in, in its net worth. Well, people don't understand what the net worth is. The net worth of a company is its piggy bank. That's what you get at the end of the day if you make a lot of money. And that's what's very small at the end of the day if you're not making money. Well, if you make a lot of money, then the probability of you making more money going forward is good. If you earn less money, the probability of you earning more in the future is not as good. So the, the balance sheets of these banks are clearly showing declines in earnings, that their net worth is down, that the secular growth in, in the company has been harmed by it, and the stock is going up. That makes sense. I think people have got to work against I think they've got to take profits at the moment. You put out some notes on this and just kind of summarizing some of what you just said there. Um, net interest income among the uh, six banks that had reported at the time of your note uh, with those margins were up, loan volume was up, net interest income rose more than it was year over year. However, loan losses soared, the rise in net interest income caused the value of assets to plunge, and consequently, despite the strong rise in net interest income, pre-tax earnings year over year were down, net worth declined. So the point you make here is that investors have ignored this fact that money is going out of the bank, out of the piggy bank, as it were, is greater than the money coming in, and investors just have a blind spot here. They don't recognize the reality. Yes, they don't understand that when interest rates go up, the value of all financial assets go down. So if you have a balance sheet, which is composed of 91% mortgages, auto loans, securities that you per you know, debt securities that you purchased, you know, you know, variety of loans, the, the, the value of all those things are going down. And they're going down not by a small amount, but by a large amount. And the fact of the matter is they're going down by so much that they're offsetting the increase in earnings, which are coming from net interest income going up. 
Well, at the end of the day, you know, I like to use this very simplistic example. If you give me 50 bucks and I put it in my right hand pocket, my net worth just went up by 50 bucks. If my partner takes 75 bucks out of my left hand pocket, then my net worth did not go up 50 bucks. It went down 25 bucks and my ability to spend money, to make loans, to, to interact, you know, to increase my earnings has been reduced. Well, that's what's happening in this quarter. Net worth, net worth is going down. If net worth is going down, these banks cannot grow their earnings as fast as they would have if net worth went up. And, and let me tell you, the regulators are noticing it. This guy, Michael Barr, who was the uh, newly anointed uh, banking czar at the Federal Reserve, uh, I don't know when he spoke, whether it was Tuesday, Thursday, Friday last week, but he said clearly that he doesn't like the accounting in um, the big regional banks because they're not being held to the same standards as the big money center banks. In other words, PNC, uh, U.S. Bank Corp. are not held to the same accounting standards as, you know, a Bank of America and J.P. Morgan. And he thinks that there are things that are going wrong as a result of it, and he's going to tighten it up, number one. Number two, there's been all sorts of talk from numbers of regulatory places about the fact that this decline in net worth cannot continue and that uh, something has to be done about it. So I, I think that even if investors don't care that the banks are less capable of making more money now, the regulators do care and the regulators are going to do something about it. So it's another negative. So anyway, um, hmm. stocks are soaring today. What would regulators do? In the case of, uh, you know, the, the, the value of the assets going down and, and uh, it not being recognized, the banks are cheating, right? What they're doing is because of the way bank accounting is set up, and, and again, all this stuff gets more complicated than it needs to be. If a, if a bank says, I bought this security and my intention is to sell it, then the regulators say, well, you've got to mark the value of that, mark, of that security to market every quarter. If the bank says, I bought the security and I have no intention of selling it until it matures, then the regulators say you don't have to market to market. So what do the banks do? The banks have got hundreds of billions of dollars in securities in which they said, we bought the security and we intend to sell it. And, and in this quarter, they've taken hundreds of billions of dollars of these securities and said, no, we're going to hold them till they mature. Now, that didn't change the value of the security. The value of the security still went down, but they're not showing it anymore. And because they're not showing it anymore, they're hiding the fact that the value of the security is going down. The regulators can stop that. They can stop that, number one. Number two, if you take a look at the... Um, Sorry, when you say they can stop it, they can force them to mark to market or they can force them to reclassify them or they can are they going to change the rule and require mark to market accounting? They can say simply, you know, you said that this stock was was going to be held for sale. You and, and this was when the regulations were initially put in place. It was a massive ten-year battle, and it occurred, you know, in the 1970s, uh, as you can imagine. And the regulators can simply say, you said that you were going to hold this for sale. That's what you're doing, and therefore you got to market to market. So banks, do they do the banks actively reclassify? as as markets move forward and against them so that they can they're constantly taking advantage of this rule or is it more of like they have to be gimmicky with their gamesmanship so that the regulator doesn't catch on to their gaming it or is it more less more or less transparent than that 
it's it's what you said initially they do whatever they want and you can take the uh, balance sheets of pnc financial truest financial which just came out today u.s bank corp a year ago they had zero securities in the held to mature category right zero now the average of each one of those banks in the held to maturity uh, portfolio is something on the order of 75 to 90 billion dollars so they have moved they have moved 75 to 90 billion dollars away from where it will be marked to market where it's adjusted to what the real price of the security is into this held to maturity category where it's not being marked to market is there data to show the different duration of stuff that's still marked to market like if i were running my bank i would mark to market my one years and and hold to maturity my 30 years in a rising interest rate environment is is that is it that cute the, the, the uh, some banks will give you uh you know broad duration numbers on what they have in their security portfolio but uh they don't do it by by class of security in other words we don't know uh how many mortgages which they have on their books at three percent when the new mortgage rate is seven percent meaning that the value of the mar- mortgage is down maybe 25 30 percent they don't mark that to market they don't show it right uh and therefore again going back to the 70s you know analysts and investors in the 70s understood that the banks were cheating in terms of showing what their true asset values were and they were cheating in terms of showing what their real net worth was so what they did in that period was in 1969 the pe multiples on bank stocks were 15 times earnings in 1981 the pe multiple on bank stocks were five times earnings they knocked they knocked down the PE multiple on these stocks more than was necessary because they didn't know what the true value of the assets were. They didn't know what the true value of the equity was. And my assumption was that they would do the same thing today, that investors couldn't be, you know, so lacking in in, in analysis that they would just ignore what was going on here. But they are. I'm so, sorry, sorry if this is an ignorant question, but when you cite an early 1970p ratio to an early 1980p ratio, the, the interest rates have changed so much that five times might be the appropriate ratio in 1980. I guess my question is, is this gamesmanship? Like, is it clearly gamesmanship? Or is it, you know, when you have a 3% mortgage, like you cited, and on your books, and you're planning on marketing it, you're planning on selling it because interest rates might go down and, and you can make more money selling it and reinvesting the proceeds. But when interest rates go up, you, you're you now looking at a mortgage that's probably not going to get refied for a long, long time. And so you're going to have to hold it for maturity. And so it's just re- reality meeting the balance sheet because now you're going to have to hold that mortgage. So you're just actually marking it where it should be because you are going to hold it to maturity now that interest rates have risen in, in your face. Well, it's actually worse than that uh, because basically, you know, if, if you're going to hold it to maturity, right, you know, and and you've got a three percent return on that mortgage the reality is the mortgage is not worth what you got it on the balance sheet for it's just not exactly worth it. i agree with that yeah. I mean, i'm not saying it's right. worth it. i'm just saying but, is it reality know, on the balance sheet that they're now going to keep it worth before they're thinking of selling it uh the reality is they're going to keep it rather than thinking of selling it and and that's shown in the, the small glimpse of numbers that we have in other words we know 
the, the it's it's called the available for sale portfolio. That's the ones where you're thinking of selling it. Those portfolios are dropping like rocks, 20, 30, 50 billion dollars, right? The held to maturity portfolios, as, as I mentioned a second ago, so it was zero. They go on to be 30, 50 billion. So they are, it is gamesmanship. But, you know, bank accounting is even worse than that, all right? Because since you mentioned mortgage, banks have something called servicing portfolios. A mortgage servicing portfolio is how much money the bank collects because they collect the monthly payment. They take care of, uh, you know, getting that monthly payment to the bondholder. They call it, they handle a, a repossession. If it's going to be a repossession, they handle the reselling of it. So they charge a servicing fee for handling all of these, th these difficult issues, right? Now, if interest rates are low, they estimate that they will collect the servicing fee, we'll say, for 15 years. And they take that in increasing the value of their assets, right? If interest rates go up, then they take and say, we're going to hold these securities for, ten, for, for five years, for four years. And therefore, the assumption of how much money they're going to make goes way down and it reduces the value on the balance sheet. Well, interest rates are going up now. As interest rates are going up, the value of that portfolio is going down. But on the balance sheet, it's going up because the servicing value is increasing. And again, I apologize because it's very wonky stuff, but the fact of the matter is, the, the thing to take away is the banks are cheating on showing what their asset values are. And they're cheating in a fashion of not showing that their asset values are substantially lower than what the, the, the what they're putting on their books. And therefore, their stock prices should not be going up if they're doing that. I'm, I'm just hesitant with this word cheating because it sure seems to me, and I think I'm understanding what Dick's saying, but it sure seems to me that what they're doing is just kind of following the rules. And the rules are designed in their favor to protect balance, the, the appearance of the bank's balance sheets. And just like a consumer or a, re a retail investor, you know, what a long-term investment is a short-term investment gone bad, they, they issued these mortgages thinking they'd flip them off their balance sheet within 12 to 18 months. Interest rates have spiked, so now they can't afford to sell them because they have to take huge losses. But they don't have to take the huge losses if they hold to maturity. So they're just following the rules and doing the rational thing. And I wouldn't call it cheating if they're behaving according to the regulators because the regulators are saying, mark to market, if you're going to sell it, hold to maturity, don't have to mark to market. Well, what would you do if your assets were down 30%? You would move everything to hold the maturity too. So I don't know how, if it's cheating in in the sense that like they're tricking the regulators or if it's cheating in the sense that they're just following the rules and the rules allow them to deceive the investors what the real value is. I, I think what you're trying to say there, just to step in, Matt, is that the rules are rigged in favor of the banks and they could be, you know, in effect, cheating um, and misleading the investing public. Okay, but what Matt said is correct. You know, they are following, and what you said, John, is correct. They, they, they are following the rules, and the rules allow them to do what I call cheating, all right? And now, is there any impact as a result of following the rules which allow them to overstate the value of their assets? And the answer to that is yes, because it means that they don't have net worth that they say they have. And if they don't have that net worth, they can't deploy it. They can't go out and borrow money against net worth that they don't have. And ultimately, if they continue to do what they're doing, the interest rates will go up substantially on the loans that they attempt to make 
because of the fact that the market understands that they don't have the assets that they say they have. So I, th there is there is an impact, but you know it is true they are following the rules. You can't say that they're doing anything wrong. You can say that the rules are no good. But the bottom line is, I think it's cheating. I think there is an impact, and I don't like it. <laughs> so is it wrong to speculate that the reason the rules are here is to add stability to the system, so that banks fortify their balance sheets artificially during downturns? But these rules are pro-cyclical, uh, and and you know I'll give you give you uh what the heck i can't remember the, the the name of the rule but i mean basically uh it's called the nickname for it is cecil uh cecil is uh, another bank accounting maneuver uh cecil is uh every time you put a loan on your books you're supposed to estimate how long that loan will exist and whether you're going to earn or lose a certain amount of money on that loan. Let's assume you assume it's going to exist for seven years. It's a mortgage. It's going to exist for seven years, and you're not going to lose any money on it. Uh, then, you know, you have a very low loan loss provision, okay? Let's assume, on the other hand, that you, uh, that you think that, you know, we're going to have a recession, and, you know, as a result of that, you know, you, you're going to increase your loan loss uh, uh, your provision to reflect the fact that the that you're going to have this loss, right? Then you're going to increase your loan loss provisions and you're going to reduce your equity, et cetera. So now, in this case, the banks are getting screwed by the rules, all right? Now, where do we stand? A year ago, two years ago, we had a pandemic, right, in, in 2020. And we said that's going to create a terrible recession. And the banks, therefore, increased their loan losses dramatically at a time when their business was falling off dramatically. All right. Then a year ago, we had vaccines. And, you know, it, it looked like the pandemic was wearing out. So you, the decision was made that there wouldn't be a recession. Times would be good. And therefore, the banks dramatically lowered their loan loss provisions, okay? And that meant that, again, they were doing something pro-cyclical. They were increasing their earnings in good times, whereas they were decreasing them by this loan loss provision rule in bad times. All right, so now we're sitting here uh, and we've got all these assumptions that the Fed is going to tighten and that we're going to have a recession, so the banks are moving up their loan loss provisions again. So they're basically adjusting on a pro-cyclical basis to what could be worse times. Now, how much money are we talking about? Well, the biggest bank in the United States is J.P. Morgan Chase. A year ago, when it was assumed that the economy was going to be fine, we had the vaccines, things were great, J.P. Morgan reduced its loan loss provision by $1.5 billion. Three days ago, last Friday, we assumed that the economy was not going to do as well. And Jamie Dimon keeps running around arguing that we're going to have, uh, you know, a hurricane, et cetera. So the bank increased its loan loss provision by $1.5 billion. So if you go from a $1.5 billion reduction to a $1.5 billion increase, that's a $3 billion swing, which comes out of earnings, which comes out of net worth. So, you know, the, these rules are not good. These yeah. rules are not giving people a true view of what's going on inside the banking company. But bottom line, when you net it all out, in fact, as, as Jamie Dimon said in his conference call, you know, a 1% increase in the uh, interest rates means that we have to reduce our net worth by $4 billion. That's a big number, yeah. <laughs> even, for, even for a trillion dollar, multi-trillion dollar bank. 
I think that what's happening with bank stocks right now, to go back to this, instead of all of these accounting issues, if we go back to the simple discussion, what the market is saying is these companies are earning more money than we thought they were earning, and therefore we're going to put their stock prices up. What I'm saying is watch out because they're not earning more money than you think they're earning because you're not looking at the change in net worth. And if you look at the change in net worth, they're earning less than you think they're earning, and therefore these stocks should be lower in value. So you know, right now I'm wrong. The market obviously is always right. And we'll see you know, in, in a month or so who's right. And, and the big driver in this is rising interest rates, Dick, right? Correct. Correct. Okay, and I, I just want to also, the credit card units of these banks, does that play into this? Has there been rising defaults and like the, you know, the credit card industry is what is credit card balances in the United States moving closer to 1 trillion. It's actually 887 billion total credit card debt in the US. Credit card debt is still very low, all right? Okay. And, and this, but, but you raised another point that I think is very important to mention. And that is that uh, Brian Moynihan, who is the CEO of uh, Bank of America, has for two years constantly said that we're not in trouble. The consumer is in great shape. Uh, there's more money in the consumer's bank account today than there was a year ago or two years ago. And he said it again yesterday. All right. But the point is, he's wrong. All right. Why is he wrong? He said that, you know, the consumers have 5% more money in their bank account today than they had at the beginning of the pandemic. All right. So in that two and a half year right. period, my belief is that inflation was up 12 to 15%. Okay. If inflation was up 15% and you got 5% more money in your bank account, you have less buying power. You are not in good shape. The real income of the consumer is going down because inflation is, is weakening. So to say that the consumer is in good shape because they get 5% more money in their bank account and ignore the fact that that 5% buys significantly less product than it did two years ago and ignore the fact that real incomes are down as a result of inflation is, in my view, not correct. You can't say that. And going beyond that, you know, consumers aren't buying a whole bunch of houses. Car, car sales are not rising. They're topping out. You know, retail sales, the last numbers that were produced were not that good. So what is he talking about? He's talking his stock up. He's not talking about what the consumer's real position is, which is, in my view, substantially eroding because inflation is destroying incomes, buying power and wealth. Yeah, so he's talking up the stock. Uh, the average American has lost uh, a month's worth of purchasing power because of the corrosive effect of inflation. That's what we've been told. The, 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 you, you see it in the stores, see it at the gas station, um, consumer durables. It's a total and utter disaster. There was an interesting uh, comment from somebody, Dick, um, mentioning how banks are investing their surplus deposits in short-term treasuries. Um, so this is kind of a high margin business and they're not paying a lot on deposit accounts. That's got to be a bountiful unit for them. That, mu that must be an area where they're, they're reaping a fortune. No, just the opposite. Well, yeah, first off, you know, the yields on these uh, treasuries until just a couple of weeks ago, well, a couple of months ago, was extraordinarily low. And they were being forced to put money in treasuries by, again, more bank accounting rules. The bank regulators said, 
I'm just going to give you, a, it's not this for every bank, but they said basically you have to have 20 to 22% of your assets in liquid position, which means it's got to be in federal funds, it's got to be in uh, short-term treasuries, uh, and, and it has, in other words, money, which if there was a run on the bank could immediately be gotten to pay off the run on the bank so that everybody would understand that the bank was in good shape. And that number, as they say, is about 20, 22%. So banks were losing money in, in this situation. But all of a sudden, the Fed starts raising interest rates dramatically. And what turns out to be a money loser turns out to be a money gainer, right? And therefore, yeah. uh, they're, they're benefiting now. But, you know, it wasn't a designed policy by the banks that we're going to go buy treasuries because, you know, we're going to make a lot of money on them. It was, you know, you you better go out and buy those treasuries because your bank, your balance sheet is illiquid. So, you know, and, and you know, this is a problem the Credit Suisse is running into right now. But um, basically, you, you better you better be liquid because, you know, your equity doesn't mean anything in terms of a run on the bank. Your your liquidity, liquidity meaning how much cash do you have on hand? How much cash can you get in the next 20 minutes, you know, by selling, you know, assets, uh, you know, that basically that what is uh, involved here. Well, okay. Thanks for that clarification. I, 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 Jim Cramer has been banging that drum. So I guess we'll have to advise him otherwise. Um, well, I mean, you know, basically, I, I, I believe that virtually no one understands the bank balance sheet. And the other thing you have in the note, Dick, was stock buybacks. Is is that pretty intense at the moment? They're, they're using their money to buy back stock, these banks? Well, it, it, not, not at the moment because the regulators have shut them down. But uh, the point is, you know, because the regulators understand what we're saying here about all this arcane accounting and, and, and the, uh, the, the decline in net worth. So banks are not buying back any stock at the moment. However, over the last five years, you know, banks have bought back stock aggressively, and and we're talking trillions of dollars now of stock that they bought back in in this five year period. Uh, a company like Citigroup at one time at one point had bought back sixty billion dollars worth of its stock because it felt it had excess equity. So you know, the, the reason why they do it is because they believe it increases earnings per share. Number one. And number two, by increasing earnings per share, what it does is it uh, causes the stock price to go up. But the numbers say they're wrong. In other words, you know, we, yeah. we've shown by taking the prices uh, of the top six banks in the United States, uh, you know, which is everybody thinks is the banking industry, that their stock prices, other than the companies like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs, their, their stock prices went down. In, 50% of the cases, and in the other 50%, they went up at half the rate of the market itself. So it didn't work. The, the, the strategy did not work. But every investor out there, you know, if he gets on a conference call with a bank, they want to know how much bank, how much stock are you buying back? When are you going to buy it back? How much, how bigger can the buyback be? What they don't care about is they're weakening the bank. They're, they're reducing the bank's piggy bank, right? The money's going out of the piggy bank. It's not being used to invest. It's not being used to make loans. It's not being used for economic benefit. It's being used to give some guy enough opportunity to sell the stock in the bank that's giving him the money. Dick, let me ask you, did you really mean this? You said that the fact that a lot of board of directors at banks don't understand what's really going on or pretending they don't is a reason for them to be fired. 
I, I think the average IQ of uh, someone on a board of director in America is about 80. You know, I think that, uh, you know, <laughs> obviously that's not true. They're some of the smartest people in the United States. But, you know, the question is, what is their motivation? Is their motivation to build the business or is their motivation to build the stock price? Well, you know, it, it appears in the last decade or so, you know, the motivation is to build the stock price. And therefore, instead of taking the money that is being generated by the bank in terms of its profits and investing it in building the bank, they're using it to try to build the stock price. And the problem is, as I just said, it didn't work because the stock price has not gone up as much as the stock price of uh, the S&P 500. And it's not come up as much as the, uh, well, as I said, it, it's unbelievable. There's a whole bunch of banks that are selling it less today than they were five years ago. You're listening to Odeon Capital Conversations with Dick Beauvais and Matt Van Alstein of Odeon Capital Group. Dick is Chief Financial Strategist at Odeon and Matt is Odeon Co-Founder and Managing Partner. And I'm your host, John Aidan Byrne. Questions and comments, email podcast at odeoncap.com. That's podcast at odeoncap.com. Com. Dick and Matt, our podcasts have looked a lot at money printing, easy money, quantitative easing, global debt, national debt, and the uh, chickens are coming home to roost at the moment. We see that in the UK where there's a total catastrophe. The Prime Minister is just waiting to be fired, I suppose. She replaced her finance minister and reversed the entire package that they were hoping to unleash upon the um uk electorate tax cut plans and all kinds of incentives on energy so we're at a tipping point it seems to me on money printing america's trying to get its house in order but that's looking um not quite so assured well I, this is this is one of my core arguments since we started doing this in that um ba basically what we're saying is governments cannot increase their debt and pay for that increased debt by printing money, that to do so is highly inflationary and it creates unrealistic values in the financial markets. Now, we do have a laboratory experiment going on, and that's Great Britain. You know, in Great Britain, uh, this prime minister trust, you know, got her position because she went out to the public and said, you know, we're going to do exactly what I just said is wrong. We're going to cut our taxes, increase our debt, borrow the money, take the money we borrow and use it to pay people off in terms of their electric bills and in terms of their incomes, right? Well, the market finally rose up and said, no, you're not. You're not going to do it. And the reason why you're not going to do it is because I don't want your debt. And, and as, as Matt said a couple of weeks ago, I don't want pounds. I want real money. All right. So, so the point is, she was forced to completely reverse her position. She was forced to fire, you know, the, the, the chancellor of the exchequer, bring a new one in. The new guy came in and he said, no, you can't do any of the things that you're saying. And now she's, she's up, she's in a very tenuous position. But more importantly, the, the lesson that I think is there is you can't do what we've been doing for the last 50 years forever. 
You can't increase debt and pay that debt by printing money. All right. So the net effect is if you do it, the market is finally saying we're going to nail you on it. But it's not saying that in the United States. In the United States, they're saying if they ease up, if the Fed would only ease up, you know, everything would go swimmingly and the market is soaring, right? But that's a case of you may get what you wish for. In other words, uh, the, the point is that if we do that, we're going to be in Britain's position and we're going to see the value of our currency come down, our inflation rise. You just can't do it. You, we were able to do it for 50 years, but we've reached the end of the line. And, and I think that's the point that we get from Great Britain. And that's the point that this market should be deriving from the current situation. I agree with every single thing you said. Every time we talk about countries and, and their debt levels and, you know, there's a level where you, you push too far and you just can't go any further. And uh, Quasi Quatang figured that out when he you know got proposed his tax cuts to to fund uh, or proposed issuing debt to fund his tax cuts. But what I can't put my finger on, and we've we've talked about this from time to time, but we've never really dived into it. I think we should do a whole episode at some point on it. Is why this isn't true about Japan, and it hasn't been true about Japan for decades. And and Great Britain is nowhere near. The United Kingdom is nowhere near where Japan is on on debt to GDP or or current account deficits or anything like that. And Japan has been able to operate for multi-decades uh, in this in this world. And I can see how America is different than the United Kingdom because we're the, the sovereign, you know, the, the reserve currency for the, United, for the entire globe. And we're the currency that basically every commodity is priced in. And basically the, well, and we also earned it because we provide the Navy that, you know, allows for global trade and all that other stuff. But I just don't get why this, the rule doesn't apply to Japan and what makes Great Britain different from them well you know basically i was in the same position as you were completely unable unable to to uh understand what was going on in japan particularly when the yen had dropped down to one to the penny you know 100 yen to a dollar um that that was unbelievable but the world is now caught up with japan i mean the yen is now 149 to the dollar which you know is you know a, a, you know a massive depreciation in the multi-decade low, yeah, yeah, yeah. So so the net effect is you know uh, I, I don't understand how J Japan got away with it for for a couple of uh, maybe three decades, but they're not getting away with it anymore, and and that's and that's going to be a real problem for them. Well, the other issue faced in the UK, I think Truss had this idea of um, somehow getting the energy markets in the UK up and running again. I mean, there's this whole green lobby worldwide, which is anti-fracking, anti-drilling. And uh, it's believed by some scientists that there is still a lot of natural resources, you know, on the coastlines over at the UK, but that's a no-go area for a lot of the environmentalists. So she's not going to crack that nut immediately, but that's one problem facing it. And to Matt's point persistently, you spoke about it's not a reserve currency. I looked it up. I mean, I think it's like 4.5% of the world's trade is in British pounds. It's kind of insignificant. It's level pegging with the Japanese yen. The euro has 20%. And the US dollar is still the strongest. Um, but the UK is, has had all these perennial problems over the recent decades. It's no longer this great world power. Um, God help us. It's no imperial power. And, and I guess that's a history we don't want to talk about. We'll all get, um, hot under the collar. But I mean, it's been bailed out so many by the IMF, 
1975 and then it had to uh it left the uh exchange rate mechanism that european wide um mechanism in the eu uh, in 1992 but it's always has been experimenting it had brexit it, it's it seems to me it's always on the verge of collapse and recovery well i'll, g- I'll give you one of my personal family stories again you know i have a brother-in-law who is the son of a British knight, and um, he basically oh. refuses to call Delighted himself. to know you. <laughs> <laughs> he refuses to call himself, you know, uh, a Brit. He's he's English. He's not British. He's English, and it's not the United Kingdom. It's England. And a couple of years ago, he sent me a book, and the book was entitled "It's Too Bad They Don't." It's too bad they speak our language which was an attack on the Americans, you know, uh, and, and how screwed up they were with their political <laughs> systems, et cetera. And I felt like, you know, in the last couple of days, uh, writing, is, is this book meant an opposite and sending him the book back? <laughs> no, because Britain is so messed <laughs> up. But no, but I, I see him in microcosm as, you know, the fact that Britain doesn't realize that the world has changed on him. It doesn't realize that it's no longer the most powerful, uh, you know, country on the planet with control over fifty percent of the landmass of the planet. It doesn't realize it's a country off to the side, and therefore it 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 tries to hit way be above its weight, and it can't do it. And you know, it, I think it's beginning to learn. Number one, that its political system is is deeply troubled. You know, you can't have two prime ministers in a row this bad. And, and, and you know, and, and number two, that its its ability to achieve change globally is gone. And it may at some point realize it better get back in the European Union. Britain is now off to the side and it just isn't what it used to be. I, I, I disagree on the European Union front, but I, th- I yeah. feel like what, what you're seeing on, on in the United Kingdom is what's going to happen to the eurozone and the in the European Union next, and then eventually the United States. Basically, in my opinion, what they've done is they've decided that they can be a printing machine. They can print money while not producing self-sustaining, reinforcing economic policies. And when they've gone, when they go green, and I, I don't want to make an environmentalist versus non-environmentalist thing because but green is the you know the, the the key word that kind of consolidates. Let's import our energy instead of manufacture our own energy and become self-sufficient when you when you could be self-sufficient in energy and you just choose not to be what you're doing is you're choosing to pay economic rent to someone else for something you could produce at a lower cost and so you're basically deciding that we're going to have a lower gdp for the rest of our existence because we're not optimizing what is good for our geographic conditions in our in our workforce and i think that's what they've decided in my mind they've decided to go green and what they're doing is they they have to import energy at a much higher cost than they can produce it themselves, and they have to do it with money that is much more dear because they have less efficient uh, less efficient economy than they would have had they been producing their own energy. And I, then you look over across the, the channel, and that's what Europe's doing. You know, the Netherlands has one of the largest natural gas fields outside of the Middle East, and they are actively pro you know pro- proclaiming proudly that they will not develop it because of of their zero. And you know net zero policies that they want to obtain by 2050, and you know these are these are kind of suicide pacts because then you look across you know I guess the the, the battlefield and Russia's over there saying yeah real politic is we have energy we have a healthy balance sheet we're not in debt we're making a ton of money on this war 
as much as you can sanction us, we're getting rich. And and it's real politics, which is ba- real politics, which is basically if you can be self-sufficient and have an, an efficient economy, which means maximizing the use of the resources that God gave you, you can mm. you can be a really strong economy. And I feel like the UK, and this is you know not Liz Truss's fault. It's not necessarily she inherited it because Boris Johnson was this guy that had basically in my mind a lot of policies correct, but he wanted to be net zero by twenty thirty or some ridiculous notion. And you can't be net zero and be efficient. The the thing that uh, the uh, green people don't understand is that the policies that they're advocating are resulting in more pollution, not less, because these countries that don't have access to oil or gas are now using coal, and coal uh, mining has increased, you know, dramatically. So that uh, you know what we're doing is we're not substituting oil and natural gas for windmills and uh, you know solar power. We're substituting it for coal. And coal, and coal is the worst polluter of all. And some some point rationality again under my theory that things has to happen, that things have to happen, happen. You know, rationality is going to come into this situation, and there's going to yeah. be a recognition that we can't we can't keep incenting the creation of coal mines. What coal. you're saying is arguing it from the environmentalist perspective. But I'm saying from the economic perspective. When you're importing energy at a much higher price than you could produce it, and by the way, if they were a producer, you're talking about the UK here, Matt, right? Yeah, the UK. They could be a net exporter. They could be a solution to the Europe. To Europe, they could be making money. They could have gone, you know, they could be completely independent and making money exporting natural gas to their neighbors, and have a very strong economy if they had never gone down this ridiculous path of let's not be an energy producer. I'm sympathetic uh, with the UK voters who decided to pull out of Brexit. I know that's kind of heresy in some circles, but um, many aspects of the EU is anti-prosperity. It literally is. And, you know, I'm all for clean environments and the outdoors. I I love everything clean and pristine, but there has to be reality check. Look what's happening to the Dutch farmers with with the um, environmental movement. They're, They're trying to starve themselves there to death with all these policies that are anti-agrarian and that's why you see them out in the streets on their tractors uh, saying we can't put up with this we need these pesticides and whatever we need to to grow our crops a lot of that's coming from the eu it's 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 absolute madness that's why i think the eu is the is the next next one to fall i i, I think i think you know you said voting for brexit's not you know popular but i i disagree i think i think britain looked around and they were all standing on the guillotine and they, they got off first knowing that they're going to get shot at and they have a chance for survival, which I think the EU is in a suicide pact myself. Yeah, no, when I said that, just to, on the Brexit, it was 51-49 or 52-48, something like that. That's what I'm saying. But most of the vote to leave the EU, interestingly enough, was outside the, <clears throat> the areas of, in the north of England that lost thousands of jobs. It wasn't in the centre of London among the, um, the elite, if you will. Um, it was in all those port cities that lost shipbuilding jobs uh, and just just couldn't take the suffocating bureaucracy coming out of Brussels. So meanwhile, the war in Ukraine continues, Dick, and you had some thoughts on this. You sent out a note saying that in your view, uh, this was a win in some sense for the Chinese. Well, I think it's a massive win for the Chinese. I think that uh, what we're looking at is uh, the United States, you know, 
uh, learning that uh, a whole bunch of countries around the world, like Saudi Arabia and Nicaragua, uh, you know, are on the Chinese uh, Russian side. Uh, they, but the United States is spending now billions of dollars on armament for Ukraine, which is costing money, affecting our deficit. Uh, and we're not sure, even if we save Ukraine from the Russians, what we've won because the Cold War is, is up again. From the Russian side, you know, they're now being vilified uh, around the world. They may be making money on selling oil, but the fact is that they're having difficulty getting replacement parts for their current uh, pr the current products that they have. So it's it's negatively impacting them. It's having no impact on China. China is not losing a lot of money because of it. China is actually getting oil at a discount price because of it. China is uh, increasing uh, the power of its position in, in Southeast Asia while the United States and Russia go at each other. So uh, if we assume that there are three major powers in the world at the moment, you know, U.S., Russia, China, China is increasing its power base uh, as, as a result of what's going on here. It's, it's been a bonanza for them. They may wind up with Taiwan because of it. Uh, it's, it's, it's unbelievable that we're not thinking about this. And of course, they have their Congress going on at the moment. Um, but the thought occurred to me also that China is invested in Ukraine as well. They have a lot of investments there. They they would like, I, I would imagine, on some levels to see this war wrapped up and ended. Yeah, well, but China has investments everywhere. You know, mm. we, we, we've mentioned that they've got supposedly 6% of the world's GDP is owed to China because of their investment in 150 countries around the world, including the United States. So, you know, you can't find a country that you can say, well, there's no Chinese investment there. It doesn't exist. It's everywhere. Yeah, it, China is everywhere. It has other problems. There's another report, nearly $8 trillion of local government debt at risk in China was a recent headline, breathtaking. Yeah, well, it's, you said $8 billion? $8 trillion. Yeah, yeah, no, eight trillion. No, that's right, and 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 it's spread around, as I say, one hundred and fifty countries, and and the collateral for these loans are the natural resources and the ports of these countries that have borrowed money from China, and China is slowly but surely going to pick up all these natural resources and pick up all of these ports uh, because of of these loans, which can never be repaid. So China, in in a sense is not lending money to these countries. They think they're getting loans. China is buying their natural resources. China is buying their output. So China is, China is not in bad shape because of these loans. I take a little bit of issue with that in the sense that there's no enforcement mechanism on these loans. You know, you, you have to be, if, if, if China's lending, you know, it's, this is not a pawn shop where you have collateral sitting in your store. This is not a bank in the United States where you have the the a lien on their first you know on their mortgage. This is a port, sometimes tens of thousands of miles away, and they do have you know political influence. And they do have mechanisms by which they can really harm that country, but they still actually have to go through that process and it's a negotiation. And I think what what your your point has been correct that they know they're not going to get repaid because what they're trying to do is buy influence, access, allies. Um, debt, you know, favors owed and whatnot. And, and, but to me, it's more like a mafia type loan where 
you're going to get paid back one way or the other, and it might be negotiated, and it might be earlier than you think, and it might be later than you expect. Yeah, well, I keep hoping that uh, history resurfaces here and that it'll be recognized that China has become a colonial power. Uh, and, uh, you know, in those colonial nations, there might be an objection. And I keep looking at Ecuador because for some reason, the terms of those loans got published. Um, and, and, you know, Ecuador is, is kind of sold its oil industry to the Chinese under this loan concept. And, and the thought that I have is if Ecuador simply says, no, we're going to renege on everything, will China send, uh, its, you know, aircraft carriers off the shore of Ecuador? And aircraft then, carrier. Or okay, um, uh, will they send it off the shore of Ecuador, uh, and and then we're going to have to wonder what we're going to do if that happens. Uh, but you know, China is building up enough military, and 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 she said it yesterday, you know, or two days ago when he gave his two-hour speech. They're building up enough military power so that they can affect change in these small countries if these small countries don't pay them back. Yeah, I, 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 um, I, I'm interested to see what they do as well. I, I would point out, and this is one of the things that we've talked about a lot, is China doesn't have a navy to be able to support an aircraft carrier going 8,000 miles from shore and, and basing there you know, for months on end because they don't have the supply chains, they don't have the support ships, they don't have the, the infrastructure to, to support it. Their, their, their aircraft carriers basically to show the world they have one and to kind of float around the South China Sea and stay close to home because they can't, they don't have a, a naval reach to go to South America. Yeah. You know, yeah. I think we're probably, Fair enough. I think we're yet. <laughs> okay. We need them to publish the GDP numbers. <laughs> yeah, I, next week. <laughs> yeah. After, after, after Xi gets reappointed. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. We'll look at that next week. We're out of time, Dick and Matt. We'll be back next week for episode 40 of Odeon Capital Conversations. Thanks for those insights earlier, Dick Beauvais. And for our listeners, it's important to understand that as of today's recording, October the 18th, 2022, neither Dick nor any member of his household has a financial interest in the debt or equity securities of JP Morgan, Bank of America, US Bank Corp, PNC Bank, and Truist Bank, and has not received any compensation from these companies in the past 12 months. In addition, Odeon has not received any compensation from JP Morgan, Bank of America, US Bank Corps, PNC Bank and Truist Bank and the company is not an investment banking client of these firms. Dick's written reports on these companies are available to institutional customers of Odeon at insight.odeoncap.com and additional important disclosures are available to the public generally at odeoncap.com forward slash legal under the research disclosures tab. All investing involves risk and you should consider those risks and your personal financial objectives before making investment decisions. Dick Beauvais points out that US banks are subject to complex governmental accounting rules and standards and though the banks are required to apply and follow these rules, he says the latest earning reports by the banks nevertheless offer a financial account that may overshadow financial negatives in the earnings which are not fully transparent to all investors.
Current and future holdings are subject to risk and past performance is no guarantee of future results. This podcast should not be copied, distributed, published, or reproduced in whole or in part. Information presented herein is for discussion and illustrative purposes only and is not a recommendation or an offer or solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Securities identified do not represent all of the securities purchased, sold, or recommended to clients. The views and opinions expressed by the Odeon Capital Group speaker are their own as of the date of the recording. Any such views are subject to change at any time based upon market or other conditions and Odeon Capital Group disclaims any responsibility to update such views. These views should not be relied on as investment advice, and because investment decisions are based on numerous factors, may not be relied on as an indication of trading intent on behalf of any Odeon Capital Group product. Neither Odeon Capital Group nor the speakers can be held responsible for any direct or incidental loss incurred by applying any of the information offered.